Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Well, we are in this series on uh, the book of Acts, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. So if you'd like to turn there, you could. And uh, this is one of the most memorable scenes in all the Bible. And I was thinking about that this week and realizing that, you know, there's, there's memorable scenes uh, all throughout human history that depict our fight for freedom, that depict our, our, our desire to see, uh, to see tyranny shed and freedom flourish and see humanity become and begin to thrive as it should. And I want to share with you some pictures. And these are uh, pictures that have become memorable snapshots that carry deep meaning for us, don't they? Anyone recognize that scene? From D-Day, invasion of the beaches of Omaha in Normandy. In Normandy. And uh, by the day's end of that, 155,000 Allied troops had stormed the shores. Many had lost lives. And as they did, their goal was to bring liberation to a continent. Within three months, freedom came to France. And then the invasion of Germany took place. And it was, a, it was, it was an affront to a totalitarian regime and to a holocaust. That people needed to experience freedom. And that symbol becomes a memory for us that carries a lot of meaning. Another one. Uh, if you recognize this, Selma, Selma, Alabama. About 100 years after the Civil War and after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, there were still uh, boundaries to freedom for some people in our country. And this became a front, a front, uh, front line for bringing freedom to all and equality and the fight for human dignity. So there was a movement in Selma, Alabama. Another one, 1989, some of you may remember this, some of you may have missed this one, Tiananmen Square. Uh, there is a uh, um, communist government continued to ravage and um, in a bloody crackdown had, uh, had, had killed many, many people. There was a lone man, a lone dissenter that stood against tyranny for freedom in the middle of, that, of, of, of the entrance to Tiananmen Square in front of the tanks. It's interesting that guy's become a symbol. We really don't know much about him. And yet he's a symbol of freedom. Now, friends, why do I share all this? The reason is because when you get to Acts 2, the passage we're going to look at today, it is the symbol you, that ought to come to your mind when you think of the freedom for a Christian. When you think of an event, a moment, something that, that packs significance and, and meaning for us that brings us freedom, it's Acts 2, and it's the coming of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. And so we are going to look at that today because uh, this is the, the event that brings us personally, experientially, freedom through Christ by the Holy Spirit that God sends to us. So let's look uh, and read in Acts, uh, beginning of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues about the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, were saying, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at Acts 2, we're uh, kind of confronted with this pretty dramatic scene. It's a memorable scene. Once you've thought about it, it sort of captures a mental image for you and one that ought to stick with you. And what we're seeing is in, in Acts 1, if you go back, Jesus had ordered his disciples to wait. And so Jesus had died. He'd gone on a cross. He'd been in the tomb. He was resurrected. He walked around for 40 days, appeared up to 500 people, uh, many times appeared to different people, and, and began to teach his disciples, it says, about the kingdom of God. And then before he ascended and went to, the, went to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, he told the disciples, wait, because not many days from now you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they were waiting, and it says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. Uh, you ought to wonder what that was like, uh, just waiting. Jesus was like, well, not many days. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They had no precedence. They had no understanding. They had no background. They couldn't look back and go, well, the last time this happened, because this had never happened before. So they, they weren't sure what it is they were waiting for, but they were waiting, likely in a very large home. There was uh, 120 of them that were gathered uh, in this space at, at that time. But when it says when the day of Pentecost arrived, there's actually a, a little bit of a, a clue in the language there that says when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Uh, and so there's something there that says the, 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 the day they were waiting for, there was a fulfillment, and it's kind of trying to point to something saying, what's about to happen is really big. This isn't just the day, the next day on the calendar rolled along. This is a day that they were waiting for that had now been fulfilled. In fact, what I want to do, uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to step back and try to help you understand that it wasn't just a few days they were waiting for this. But actually, this was something every human, for all of human history, had been waiting for, whether they knew it or not. Everything pointed to this moment as a radical breakthrough and something that changed in all of human history. And so I want us to get a sense of how, how big this moment really is. And throughout the entire Bible, what we see is this pattern or this rhythm that shows up as we go through the entire thing. And I want you to get a sense of the bigness of God and the expansiveness of his plan and everything that was unfolding that came to a head in this single moment when the Spirit descended upon the disciples and this other group of people. Now, throughout the Bible, you see this, the, this theme. And what we saw, if you, if you remember when we read, uh, the, the Spirit, it says there's a sound of a rushing wind 
or sound like a rushing wind that came in, and there was tongues of fire that descended upon them. And this image of wind and fire, these images kind of form an image system going through the whole Bible for the presence of God and the activity of God and the guidance of God and the direction of God and the intervention of God for the good of his people. So I want to step back, and we're just going to run through, and I know this is going to make you nervous, we're going to run through the whole Bible. And we're going to look at this. So I hope you guys packed a lunch or snack or something. We're not going to be here that long, I promise. Um, but here, here's the thing, Acts 1-2, or I'm mean, sorry, Genesis 1-2, Bible, very beginning of the Bible, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's there. Genesis 2, then the Lord God formed from the dust of the man, uh, formed the, the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So how did humanity come? God formed through dust. He formed something. It says he he blew the wind of life into them. And that was creation. Genesis 2. What happens in Genesis 3? Sin enters the world. And immediately, what do do people do? This God who has gently breathed life into them and given them life, they immediately went and hid because they were ashamed of what had happened. And so they were there and hiding. And what happens to the rest of us, every one of us that comes after that, was that we all experience sin and its effects. And so we all walk in shame, and we all, to some degree or another, walk in hiding from the Lord until he breaks in and frees us from that. And the great battle for freedom of humanity begins because sin enslaves all of us. And so from Genesis 2, where he breathes life in and sin enters in, we, we begin to be held captive by sin and all the things that come. And what we're going to see is as God intervenes, he continues to make his plan unfold to bring human flourishing back to us. And over and over and over again, we see these themes of wind and fire that show up. Abraham in Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, uh, just a few chapters later, God says, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to select a people that, that are going to be my special people, that my chosen race, that I'm going to make sure I fulfill my purposes through them. And so he goes to Abraham and Abraham doesn't have a son. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And they literally laugh out loud, eventually call him laughter because they're so old. They're like, we're never going to have a kid. Certain pills weren't invented. There were things that weren't going to happen unless God intervened. God did. And what we see is that God tells him, tells Abraham, uh, that, that through you, through your seed, will be, you'll be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And then they cut a covenant in Genesis, in Genesis 15. And to cut a covenant, they actually took an animal and put the two parts and said, if I break the covenant, may it be to me as is done to these animals. And what happened was, there's typically in a covenant, they walk through the, the two animals together, and it's a way of signing a contract the way we sign a contract in that culture. But what God did was he actually put Abraham to sleep and said, I'm going to carry all the way to this covenant. And the Lord went through, and it says in Genesis 15 that uh, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And God made a covenant with Abraham in the presence of fire. Moses when you think about Moses just a little bit later, you get to Exodus, second book of the Bible. What happens in Genesis 3? Uh, any of you remember Moses' call? It's kind of a strange thing. He's walking along with some sheep, and he looks over, and there's a bush on fire. And he kind of keeps walking, and keeps walking, and the bush never disappears. He's like, I think I'm going to go inquire about the bush. And it says that he goes and looks. And what it says is the angel of the Lord, the presence of God, appeared 
to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And so this bush of God's presence burning there. Moses uh, then delivers God's people out of Egypt. And how did God lead his people through the wilderness? He led them through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Again, God's presence there. What happened when they got to the Red Sea? And as they come to the Red Sea, there's a, a mountain on this side, a mountain on this side, and the Egyptian army bearing down on them and a sea in front of them. And what does God do? He tells Moses, raise your staff up. And uh, it says um, that uh, the Lord will, I, and I love this verse, one of my favorite verses of the Bible says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And so the people did nothing. But God shows up. What, did, what happened? It says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea land dry, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel walked through the midst of the sea on dry ground so that they could move forward and go to head towards the promised land. The wind of God's presence delivered them. Moses, when, uh, when he went up the mountain to get the law and went up on Sinai, it says that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Because God, in his holiness, in his glory, in fact, Moses said, I'd like to see you, Lord. He says, you can't, you would be consumed, but I'll show you just a glimpse of my muted glory so that you get a taste of what I'm like. And Moses' face glowed after being in the presence of God. But the Lord descended in fire. And it says the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. Presence of God. David and Solomon, when they eventually got to build the temple, uh, the next major stretch, it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud rushed into the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord so filled the house of the Lord. The presence of God rushed in like a cloud or storm that was so terrifying them they fled. You get to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 36, they promise a new covenant. And God says, I'm not going to leave you to yourself. You can't keep the law. You never keep the law. So I'm going to write the law in your heart. I'm going to put my spirit inside you. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh so that you can obey and do the things that I'm called to do. That's Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 37, uh, we, we talk about the valley of dry bones. And it's a scenario where uh, there's, there's literally dead bodies scattered throughout this valley. And what it says is uh, that, that he's going to literally bring the dead to life. He says, thus say, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, say to the wind. Thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied, and he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. It's an amazing scene, isn't it? Remember Genesis 2, how did life come into humanity? God breathed in them. What happens here to the dead? God breathes new life. They're born again, literally. And this is connected to the promise of the Spirit that's going to come to us. That God would take that which is, is those slain and breathe new life into it by his presence, which is amazing. And we get to the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist in Luke 3.16 
John answered everyone and says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I am is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not even, other, not even worthy to untie. Let's talk about Jesus. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, John the Baptist says. Just before Jesus, John the Baptist predict, prophesies or predicts that Jesus is going to um, baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And he mentions fire. Uh, likely was thought of as a purifying fire. To be in God's holy presence is going to purify it. Likely has some kind of a, a purity um, designation there as well. Jesus was talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus, and it's interesting because this guy was fearful of all the other religious leaders and was sort of trying to get Jesus on the side and be like, hey, I, I sort of want to have a relationship with you, but I don't want to risk all the stuff over here. And so he's kind of doing this, and Jesus is trying to talk to him. He says, uh, tells him you must be born again. And the guy scratches his head and is like, dude, I, I'm too big to fit back in my mother's womb. It's just not going to work. And is a little confused about how it works, and Jesus says to him, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Do you see what's happening here? This idea of the presence of God that's expressed in an image of fire or wind shows up over and over and over again. In almost every instance, it's a place where God says, you just have to be silent. I will fight for you. God intervenes to make a nation. God intervenes to restore, uh, to restore his people. God intervenes to bring new life. God intervenes to fill the temple. God intervenes to make the people understand his holiness. On Mount Sinai, God intervenes to bring some, make someone to be born again. Um, do you get, you get a sense of the bigness of what happens in Acts 2? See, this isn't, sometimes I think when we look at Acts 2 and we go, oh, the Spirit comes down and they speak in tongues, we get, you know, we, we get sideways on the secondary things and we miss the enormous thing that's happening that is the fulfillment and the gift and the, the fulfillment of a promise and a gift that was given to us to bring new life and freedom, which is what the Scriptures tell us over and over. And this God of wind and fire is going to come and live within you. The God that was on the mountaintop with Moses that caused the entire mountain to tremble, that the people were afraid to enter into and said, we're not going near it. Moses, you go. Is going to live within you. And somehow that ought to blow your mind, the bigness and the majesty and the holiness and the fearfulness of the God of the universe says, I'm going to take up residence in you and in me. That's what we see in Acts 2. Suddenly, there came, where did it come from? There came from heaven. That word suddenly means it was miraculous. There's something that just popped on the scene. There was, not, no, there was no cause and effect. It just happened suddenly from heaven. A sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. And, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And it says what seems to be tongues of fire and what sounded like a wind. It wasn't wind and fire. It was the presence of God taking on a visible, physical um, attribute so that they could see the invisible reality of what was happening. But it was a sign of God's presence. And the disciples were stirred by the physical senses of what happened. And eventually they, th this helped them to understand more clearly 
what was happening in the invisible reality of the Spirit coming to live within them. That God said, I don't want you to, to mistake, and I, I don't want you to, to miss this. So I'm going to make this really big so that you can't ever say, well, it's not that big a deal, or it didn't really happen. He's getting their attention. And so when it talks about this, it's interesting. Luke says when tongues of fire came out, it likely was one giant piece of fire that sort of came down and then splintered into tongues of fire. And it's interesting because it says that it rested, literally it means it set down on each one of them. So that fire set down on each individual. It was likely all 120 of the disciples of Jesus that were there at that time, uh, that the fire set down saying, the Spirit is coming up to take residence in you, and 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 it set down on every one of them saying, no one is going to be without. It says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. No one was left out because no one earned their way. This was God's free blessing that he baptized them in the Holy Spirit. And God's presence took up, took, uh, took up residence inside them. Now in Acts, there's several different ways this phrase is used. It talks about uh, the filling of the Spirit, the baptizing of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, the receiving the Spirit. Uh, but the word baptized is, by, is only used by Luke for the initial endowment of the Spirit. The first time you're born again and the Spirit comes to, to live within you, um, it, it's a one-time, once-and-for-all act. And so this is an inauguration of a new era. Uh, this is an inauguration of a new experience for these people. And later, there's going to be episodes of people that are filled with the Spirit or have fellowship with the Spirit. And these things are explained uh, as you kind of work your way through the rest of the New Testament. But what, So what we begin to understand uh, about what's happening here is that, uh, that this miraculous entrance of the Spirit announcing this new era of God's work in the church was a once-and-for-all change. It was an entirely new era that had opened up for all the people of God. And so we see that begin to, be, to unfold from Acts 2 through the rest of the book of Acts. But all believers, and this is important for you to know, all believers are baptized in the Spirit's once, into the Spirit once. Meaning that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you're a Christian, the Spirit has descended upon you just as it did them. And so they got to see a physical, a visible kind of portrayal of that. But the experience is true for us as well. And that experience actually opens our lives into a new experience of the Spirit where we can be filled with Him, we can have fellowship with Him, we can be taught by Him, we can be directed and guided by the Spirit. And so there's this ongoing thing that, that the Spirit, once He's there, continues to, kind of through our relationship, you can actually wax and wane in your, your relationship to God through the Spirit. There are times where it says we grieve the Spirit because we're running after sin rather than fostering a relationship with the Lord. Uh, there are times when, uh, when, we, uh, when, when we've kind of neglected the Spirit or we ignore God's work in our life. And what the Spirit does is opens up for us the possibility that we would grow in our understanding of God's love, that we grow in our understanding of God's mission, and that we would be used and transformed by God. Later in the New Testament, you see that, uh, that though the Spirit shows up to bring salvation to us, the Spirit also brings sanctification and transformation of our lives and changes us so that we look more like Jesus. We're being transformed into the image of Christ by the Spirit that he sent to us. And that's important. So verse 4 says, We're all filled with the Spirit. 
And then you notice what happens in, the, in this episode. It says they immediately all began speaking in tongues. Other tongues here is other languages. And you can tell that because it describes all the nations that are present. And it says all these people that had come to town, and probably some of them had moved back to Jerusalem as those who had been scattered but had begun to move back to Jerusalem. Others were likely in town because of the festival uh, that was taking place, the religious ceremony that was there. And because of that, they showed up. And all of a sudden, they, they likely expected them to speak Greek or Aramaic because that's what people there would have spoken. They probably all spoke that. But like many places other, um, in, in the world other than here, uh, they likely spoke multiple languages. And so uh, where the, the languages that were kind of their, their mother tongue or the tongue they were, they were originally from, when they came in, they heard and they said, how is it that we can hear them speaking in our own idioms, our own languages, or even our own dialects that we understand? And so the speaker here, it's interesting, um, is, is, is enabled somehow as they're speaking truth, they're able to speak it in other languages that they don't know. And so that's the miracle that's taking place through this episode. And the people that are all around there as they go out into the streets begin to hear this and they're blown away. Because all these people are praising God and talking about his mighty deeds and talking about the, 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 the amazing things Jesus has done and, and that God's kingdom has come. But they're all hearing it in different languages. So to those who are outside, it sounds a little bit like gibberish. And they go like, oh, you know, drinky, drinky. You know, some of them are doing that. Some of them are scratching their head and going, what's happening? We don't really understand it. But to those that were there amongst that group, they heard the testimony of God's goodness in their own ears, in their own language, which is pretty amazing. When you, and now one of the things that sometimes gets confusing when you get to 1 Corinthians, it also talks about tongues. Uh, that's a different process, and there's some discussion, and we're not going to go totally down that today, but there, there's tongues that are spoken, and they, are, they mandate an interpreter. So there's kind of a two-step process. Someone may be able to speak in a tongue, but there's got to be an interpreter or, uh, in order for that to, to be effective. This is different. This is a one-step thing. They speak, and everyone hears. And so it's clear what is going on. And it says now uh, that as they came, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Uh, Which is a little bit funny, because Galileans in that world were kind of looked at as rednecks. And so it's honestly like they're kind of going, how do these uneducated rednecks know all these languages? It is is kind of the, that's the subtext. Uh, That's really what they're trying to get at. And they're trying to, they're confused by what's happening because this was a group that was viewed poorly by people of other regions, and they often spoke with an accent, so they could likely determine who they were, but they also were those that were with Jesus, which um, probably leaned that they were, uh, meant that they were Galileans as well. Now, the people um, here, what you see is that God, uh, what do the people do to accomplish this, this, uh, this incredible moment? They did nothing at all, right? They waited. They sat around and waited. They prayed. I mean, they, they were together. So they, they did what Jesus told them to do. I want you to go and wait. And then as they waited, the wind, and then the fire, and then they began to speak, and they began to proclaim this. This is all God's initiative. This is divine initiative. I love what Daryl Box says. He says, in a real sense, God is bringing the message of the gospel home to those who hear it. Isn't that good? They're preaching the message, and all these people hear it in their own language. He's driving the message home by his own initiative, by his own power, so that the good news is spread and nothing can get in the way. You look a little bit later, what was it they were, they were proclaiming? It says that they were proclaiming the mighty works of God. It's kind of, one guy said, these, it's proclaiming the mega deeds of God. 
Like the mega goodness of who God is is what they were proclaiming. And it's proclaiming, you notice the, 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 the kind of list of nations it gives there. Really, those are just representative of saying the whole world. That the good news is supposed to go out to the ends of the earth. What was the promise in Acts 1.8? You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, right? Very next thing, God descends. And he miraculously gives them tongues so they speak in languages that go to the ends of the known world and are people that were representative of that. There's a universal scope of the gospel that's important for us to understand what's happening. You notice though the responses. Some are confused, some um, begin to mock. Um, it's amazing how much humanity in their fallen state can mock the marvelous deeds of God, isn't it? Something miraculous that happens and they begin to mock. So let me, let me ask you this. What, what do we do with this text? How do you apply this? What are you, gonna, uh, what are you going to do with this? Because I, I don't think any of us are going to experience tongues of fire descending and sitting upon us in the same way that we saw it, that they saw it. And yet the reality of the Spirit has come to live within us and is going to birth something that's important for us. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three affirmations that we see in the Spirit's arrival. So three, three affirmations. The, for you and for me, the, of, of the Spirit's arrival. And the first is God's nearness to us. The miracle of the Spirit is that God is near to you. That God has taken up residence in you. In fact, um, in Titus 3, what we see is God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and be poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Friends, when, when you become a Christian, what happens is the Holy Spirit of God's own divine initiative births new life in you. He, and he breathes and you're born again. And that which was dead becomes new and you're made a new creation, Scriptures say. And it's through the Spirit's regeneration and renewal. But did you earn it? Did you, did, you, did you prove yourself? Were you good enough? No, what does it say? He saved us not because of our works, not because of our goodness, not because of our righteousness, but of his own initiative, of his own mercy. God had mercy on you, so he took you, though you were dead, and said, come to life. And you trust him. And he poured, he did that through the Holy Spirit's presence in you. John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, I will ask the Father, because the disciples are worried, right? The, the disciples are worried that Jesus is going to die and he's going to go away. Jesus, you're my king. Jesus, you're my teacher. Jesus, you're my savior. Jesus, you're the one I'm counting on for deliverance and everything good in my life. And Jesus says, I'm going to go away. And what's he say? I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's a promise from Jesus that God will be in you and with you forever. Friends, that's good news. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Meaning all the things that happened in Genesis 3 when sin entered the world and we became captive to it, the Spirit is unwinding those things over time. And there's freedom through the Spirit. So how, uh, friends, this ought to give you assurance that God, always, that God loves you. That God will never leave you nor forsake you. That God will 
finish what he started in you. And that you can count on him no matter what. So we count on God's nearness to us. Second, we see God's love for all peoples. First Timothy 2 says, Our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Jesus um, desires for, all, for, the, for the gospel to go out to all peoples. In fact, uh, there, there's an interesting thing that, that, that happens in this passage that I think we, we, need to, we need to highlight here. When you think about um, what happens in, in Acts 2, uh, the, the Spirit comes down and it takes one group of people in one message and translates that into languages that go out to everyone else. Did you know that's actually undoing a curse that happens earlier in the Bible? If you go back and you look at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10, um, early on, uh, after sin into the world, it says there's two lines that begin to form uh, within, within the world. There's those that begin to make a name for themselves, and there's those that call in the name of the Lord. And those two lines begin to, to, to move throughout society. They begin to build cities. They begin to come together. And, and so as you get to the Tower of Babel, uh, the group of people um, say, come, let us make bricks. And they begin to build a city and say, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So we can be like God and let's make a name for ourselves. And the Lord came down to see the tower which the children had bought and said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And God descends upon them and disperses all these people. So you have one people, one language. And they're dispersed. And that word for confusion that says, Let us go down and confuse their language is the same one that shows up in Acts 2, where when they begin to hear all the different languages spoken, it says they were confused or bewildered. See, Babel was a judgment on the people of God for rejecting God and trying to make a, make a way on their own. They were rebellious, and God dispersed them and broke their languages up. So then you had all these cultural, um, cultural places where they were at odds with one another. They have this confusion and frustration of their desire to build this city that would never end. And so God frustrated their movement. Acts 2 undoes that. Turns everything back. And takes the racial divisions and tensions and cultural alienation and divisions of languages and brings them back together and says, through the Spirit, we will make one people. And my, my gospel will go out. And so the Spirit transcends all these differences. It's amazing that on the very first day of Jesus' church, he refused to be confined to one people group, didn't he? He refused to be confined to one language because then everyone that watched may have thought, well, maybe Jesus is just for them. And what God says from the very beginning is, no, the good news of the gospel is for everyone. And so the, the message goes out to all. So we see God's love for all people. And lastly, we see God's work for the church. The descent of the Spirit leads to the ascent of the church. The whole story of Acts from here on out takes this kind of uneducated, small, unimpressive group of followers of Jesus in a very small area, and they're armed with the goodness of God and with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they become witnesses to Jesus scattering throughout the known world, adding to their people daily those who are being saved. And friends, we're called, we're called to walk in their footsteps. And so what, what Acts 2 is telling us is that God is with you, that God is empowering and equipping you to go and do his work in the world. And so we are called to do what they were called to do. We're called to go and be witnesses, to move out into 
the world and make him known. John Calvin said this, the Lord gave the Holy Spirit a visible shape in Acts 2 so that we may be certain that the church will never lack his invisible hidden grace. Friends, you may not hear the wind, you may not see the fire, but you have the same Spirit living within you. And he's alive and he's continuing to draw people to himself. He's continuing to do his work. And here's what I want just to make clear. The Spirit in you affirms that God will never leave you nor forsake you. That he who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it. God's not done with you yet. Um, He will continue to work in you. Um, Always. The Spirit in us affirms that that nothing will ever prevail against the church. The gospel and the power of God will go forth and nothing can stand in its way. And God will not stop until uh, the gospel has gone out to all nations and we will see people of every tongue and every tribe that come in to his kingdom. Let me end just reading this from Revelation 7. Um, Because this is where it all heads, right? What happened in Genesis? God breathed life, sent into the world, and we began this battle. This battle that we needed to be freed from the slavery of sin and the slavery to death. Jesus, through his resurrection, through his his death and his resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit, breathes new life into us. And one day he'll make, come back and make all things new. Revelation 7 says, And this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're proclaiming the mighty works of God in heaven, unreserved. And one of the elders addressed me and said, Who are these? He said, Who are clothed in white robes and where have they come from? I said, Sir, you know. He said, these are the ones that have come out of the tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've been, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God to serve Him day and night. He who sits on the throne with shelter and shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, that's where we're headed. We're headed to a world. And the one that takes us there is the Spirit. It says, I, I, will, I will deliver you. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would, that you would make Jesus the center. And that through him, through his sacrifice for us and the salvation we have in him, that we would trust you. And Father, as we, as we talk about the Spirit, Father, I pray that you, would, that you would awaken us to the Spirit's presence in our life, to, to God's work in and through each one of us. Father, may we never doubt that you will be with us always, that you will continue to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ that you will use each one of us 
to further your kingdom. And that one day you will return and we will worship you and we will together proclaim the mighty works of God with people of every tongue and every tribe without hindrance but in total freedom. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name by your Holy Spirit. Amen.